Last week, the angel Gabriel came to tell an elderly priest named Zechariah that he and his similarly elderly wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son, and they're to name him John. Gabriel says John will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will go ahead of the Lord in, sp in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he will reconcile parents to their children and turn many from their waywardness. And in doing so, he will make the people ready for the Lord. So this is all in fulfillment of a major prophecy in Malachi 4, which foretold all of this hundreds of years earlier. Looking back at the full context of any prophecies quoted in the New Testament is one of the backpack tools we added last week. The New Testament writers often quote a snippet of a prophecy, knowing that their listeners know the entire context of that prophecy from scripture. But us, as we, as modern readers, don't necessarily know the context. So we need this backpack tool. They might not have needed it, but we needed it. So every time we run across a snippet of prophecy in the New Testament, we'll go back and look at the original prophecy in the context in the Hebrew Bible. So the story now turns to a young girl named Mary, a virgin. She's engaged to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of the great King David, who had lived a thousand years earlier. The angel Gabriel shows up to her as well, and Gabriel says, greetings to you who have been gifted with grace. The Lord is with you. Now, this greeting completely mystifies and kind of alarms Mary. And this is a wonderful insight into her character. It speaks to her inner humility uh, that she would be surprised and alarmed by these words, but not by the angel. It's the words. Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary. Notice that do not be afraid were not the first words out of his mouth. Angels almost always have to say, do not be afraid first, because the people they're talking to are so terrified, they can't listen to what the angel has to say. But Mary is apparently not terrified of the angel. She listens to his greeting and thinks about it. And this speaks to her deep inner peace, her deep sense of safety. And the angel's admonition, do not be afraid, comes after his greeting and seems to be in response to her concern over his message, not his presence. Gabriel reassures her, you truly have found favor with God. You will conceive a son and when he is born, you are to name him Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob for all ages, and his kingdom will never end. So let's dissect this just a little bit. This is what Mary would have taught Jesus his calling was. So it's important, you know, we should look at this. This is how Jesus would have understood himself. First, he would be called 
the son of the most high. Called means sim simply meaning receiving the name. Surely Mary would have told him he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Mary would have taught him that God will give him the throne of King David. Now, there hasn't been any king of Israel since the fall of the Hasmonean dynasty, right? And there hasn't been a descendant of David on the throne in over 700 years. But the Jews still believe the old prophecies that a Messiah will come and reclaim the throne. So this is quite a high expectation for a kid, I'm thinking. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Jesus may have grown up trying to figure out if this meant he literally overthrow Herod and Rome's control over Israel or not. And I'm thinking this must have caused great consternation in Jesus' spirit because personally, he is a man of peace and not military might. So I'm, I'm, I'm feeling this tension that might have been there. Mary would also have taught Jesus that he would rule over the house of Jacob for all ages. Now, Jacob, the actual man in the Hebrew Bible, was renamed Israel partway through his life, and he was the father of 12 sons whose descendants became the 12 tribes of Israel. So this would have been understood by Jesus as meaning he would be king over Israel, specifically the 12 tribes of Israel forever. Not Rome, not Syria, not the whole world, but Israel. And that's an important point. We'll see this understanding come into play in some of Jesus's conversations later. He understood his people were to be the people of Israel. And surely that bit about for all ages and his kingdom having no end would have been perplexing. The natural understanding would be that Jesus would be the first of a dynasty that would never end, right? That's how this has always worked for the kings of David. That's what it's always meant before. So Jesus was probably expecting to get married and have kids. I doubt the boy Jesus would have understood it to mean that he'd live forever personally. And certainly Mary, so humble herself, would have taken great care to ground Jesus thoroughly in humility. In fact, I suspect Mary's deep humility is one of the reasons God chose her as, as Jesus's mother. So keep this little list in mind. We'll watch for how these points come into play as Jesus grows into his ministry. So Mary's like, how can this even happen? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come to you and the power of the Most High will envelop you. And thus the Holy One being born will be called the Son of God. Notice the specific mention of the Holy Spirit enveloping Mary. As we saw in the Hebrew Bible, the Holy Spirit has always interacted with us. The Holy Spirit is not something that just magically appears after Jesus' death. 
The Holy Spirit didn't suddenly burst onto the scene in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit is and always has been and always will be. And the Holy Spirit was well known by the Israelites and was thoroughly attested to in the Hebrew Bible. Then Gabriel tells Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Look, even your relative Elizabeth, who is said to be barren, is already six months pregnant. And Mary replies, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She said, look at me. Let May it happen to me, just as you say. And Gabriel leaves her. Well, Mary immediately packs up and hurries to go see Elizabeth. And as soon as Elizabeth hears Mary call out in greeting, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy loudly, saying, You, Mary, are blessed among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then she asks, why would the mother of my Lord come to me? So Elizabeth in the spirit understands, number one, that Mary is pregnant, and number two, that she's pregnant with the Messiah. So Elizabeth adds, blessed is she who believes that the Lord will fulfill his promises. And Mary answers in the Holy Spirit also saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has seen my humble state. And from this time on, all generations will call me blessed because the powerful one has done great things to me. Holy is his name. Notice that God is the Savior here. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God saves us. God has always saved us. God has always been our protector and our defender, our provider and our source. We saw God come up with all kinds of ways to save his people in the Hebrew Bible. And Mary bears witness to this. She testifies that God is her savior. And then Mary goes on to say all sorts of radical things. His mercy is to generation after generation to all who fear him. Fear in this context means reverence. It means knowing God is God and we are not. He performs mighty deeds and scatters those who think proud thoughts. He pulls down rulers and lifts up the humble. He fills up the hungry, but sends the rich away empty. Now, this kind of sounds like Jesus' message of the good news later, right? And I wonder if Jesus learns the good news at his mother's knee. Mary says, God has helped Israel, his servant, 
remembering mercy, just as he promised our ancestors, Abraham and all his descendants. So if you go back and look, mercy was not part of the original promise to Abraham. Mercy is what God promised the Israelites, Abraham's descendants, if they would only turn to him and let him dwell with them and bless them. If they would listen and follow God's ways, another way for word for commandments, his law, his words, his spirit, if they would humble themselves and circumcise their hearts and forsake their idols mercy would come to them. After this, Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months. Now, since Elizabeth was six months pregnant when she got there, I assume Mary stays until Elizabeth's baby is born. Now, Zechariah, of course, has not been able to speak a word this whole time. And even after his baby is born, he still cannot speak. On the eighth day after his birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth take their baby son to be circumcised. The elder or rabbi or whomever is doing the circumcision is about to name the baby after his father, Zechariah. But Elizabeth speaks right up in the middle of the ceremony and contradicts him, saying, no, his name is to be John. Oh boy, that causes an uproar. People are arguing with Elizabeth saying, you don't have any relatives named John. And they finally appeal to poor silent Zechariah. Zechariah motions for a writing tablet and he writes on it, his name is John. And at that very moment, Zechariah's tongue is loosed and he is able to speak again. And he immediately begins praising God. And of course, word of all this spreads like wildfire and people wonder what this little boy will grow up to be. We will soon see that this child is John the Baptist, not to be confused with plain old John, John the disciple who wrote the gospel of John. So if I say John, I'll try to make sure that you know the context. And, and right now, John, John, regular John, the disciple John, the gospel of John, that, that, that guy hadn't come on the scene yet physically in the story, chronologically. We're, we're talking about John the Baptist right now. So Zechariah, his tongue is loose and he says, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has redeemed, that word means ransomed, his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of David. So notice this word horn. If you were in the uh, class series called The Exile and the Return, you'll know that in the Hebrew Bible, a horn always symbolizes a king. This was made crystal clear in the book of Daniel. So it appears that Zechariah is looking for this sort of Messiah, a king who will deliver Israel from its oppressors, the Romans. Zechariah continues saying that this horn, this king, will be the salvation from Israel's enemies. Notice what salvation means in the Jewish context. It means salvation from earthly enemies. 
It does not mean salvation from hell, although we will run across that idea a little later and we'll talk about it when it pops up. But salvation to a Jew in Palestine at the time of Jesus meant salvation from Herod and Rome. It's the same thing it had always meant all through the Hebrew Bible, salvation from Assyria, salvation from Aram, salvation from Babylon, salvation from their enemies. Zechariah says, the Messiah is the fulfillment of the promise and the holy covenant God made with Israel to have mercy and to rescue the Jews so they can serve God without fear of their enemies. And not only does salvation mean that the Jews will be able to serve God without fear, but they will serve in holiness and righteousness all of their lives. Then Zechariah blesses his baby son, saying, you, my little one, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his path, to give knowledge of salvation to the people by forgiveness of their sins. You see that word knowledge? That word in Greek does not mean just being taught something. In Greek, it means having first-hand knowledge. It means applied knowledge. And look how the people get that knowledge from experiencing forgiveness of their sins. Knowing that their sins are forgiven through the ministry of John the Baptist, is how the people will know firsthand that God is coming to save them. And this precedes Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is the appetizer of blessings to come. Zechariah continues, this forgiveness and knowledge that God is coming to rescue them is happening because of the mercy of our God. And that Greek phrase that is translated here as mercy is not just plain old mercy. The Greek here refers to the visceral response God feels when he sees his people hurting. It is a strong emotional reaction by God to their suffering. God sees their suffering and responds immediately by sending comfort and following that with rescue. Zechariah ends his blessing of John by saying, therefore, a rising sun from heaven will shine on those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death a light to guide our feet in the way of peace. What a blessing. John is sent by God because God has such a strong emotional response to the people's suffering that he himself is coming. God is like a mama bear who has been roused on behalf of her cubs. And God wants John to prepare the people's hearts to meet him. 
by forgiving their sins and giving them an actual taste of what God has in store for them. It's like the manna in the wilderness. That's what the forgiving of sins is. It's the promise. It's the taste of honey that they will taste in full in the promised land. These people who are suffering in darkness and who are covered by the shadow of death will be led into peace by a light they cannot miss, a light that will chase all darkness away. That is so beautiful. And it is so like God. After all this, you can imagine how full Mary's heart is as she travels back home. She's about three months pregnant now, and she'll be starting to show soon. And she's got to tell Joseph that she's pregnant and how that came about. They are engaged and are considered contractually bound in marriage, even though the marriage has not yet been consummated. Well, Joseph, quite frankly, doesn't believe her story, but he doesn't want to make a big deal about it. So he decides he'll divorce her. He'll terminate the marriage contract quietly. Troubled in spirit, he lies down to sleep. And while he sleeps, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You will name him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Now, Jesus is the same name the angel Gabriel had told Mary to name him. So that name is already tumbling around in Joseph's head. You know, clearly Mary told told Joseph everything that happened. And Joseph would know that the name Jesus or Yeshua, Joshua, means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. I changed the word save to rescue here as a reminder of what the word save actually means. So this whole bit about Joseph's dream means that Jesus will rescue the people from their sins. He's going to rescue them from the place their sin has brought them. He's going to rescue them from death because sin always ends in death. Now, in Matthew's gospel, remember how I mentioned that Matthew has like a laser focus on how Jesus fulfills the old prophecies? Well, this is the first one he points out. He says, this fulfills a prophecy in Isaiah 7 that says, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Aha, a prophecy snippet from the Hebrew Bible. Oh boy, oh boy, let's pull out our backpack tools and go look at the original prophecy in context so we can understand it like the readers of Matthew's gospel would have understood it. This prophecy had occurred 700 years earlier. This red star is Jerusalem. 
The kingdom of Israel had split into two parts hundreds of years before that. The north and the south have been fighting each other ever since. The king of the southern part, called Judah, is named Ahaz, King Ahaz. And his enemies are the king of the northern part, which is called Israel, and Israel's ally, Aram. Now, Israel and Aram lay siege against Jerusalem itself. The situation is desperate. And even though King Ahaz of Judah is a terribly wicked and bad, bad king, God has pity on his people and his city and sends the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz with a message. Isaiah says, do not lose heart. I, Yahweh, am here to save and protect Judah. Within 65 years, the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah's enemy, will no longer exist. Go ahead, King Ahaz, ask me for a sign so I can prove to you that that I am real, I am Yahweh, and I am here to protect Judah. No matter what you ask for as a sign, I will do it. So King Ahaz thinks up a sign so Yahweh can prove he's serious, right? Nope, (laughs) that's not what happens. You see, if Yahweh is real, then wicked, prideful King Ahaz must humble himself before Yahweh. And that is not going to happen. So King Ahaz says, oh, I wouldn't dream of putting Yahweh to the test like that. Oh, my gosh. He just thumbed his nose at Yahweh. If I'm Isaiah, I'm like backing up, looking for some place to hide from the lightning strike. And Isaiah replies, hear me now, house of David, will you try the patience of Yahweh? The Lord himself will make up a sign then. And here's the sign. A virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. There's our little quote from Matthew right there in the red. This baby, Isaiah says, will know right from wrong while he is still eating baby food. And before that happens, your enemies, Aram and Israel, will be laid waste. And you, King Ahaz, as for you, the Lord will bring upon you and your house a disaster unlike any you have ever seen. He will bring the king of Assyria to destroy you. And the Lord immediately tells Isaiah to call in witnesses and write down on a large parchment the name of the baby that has not even been conceived yet. But the name the Lord tells Isaiah to write is not Emmanuel, which means God with us, but is Maharshalel Hashbaz, which means hurry up, destruction. It means war is coming and God is calling for King Ahaz's defeat. King Ahaz turned up his nose at the God with us offer. So instead, he's going to be defeated by a great army far more powerful than the two he's currently facing. So Isaiah, who has an older son by a previous wife, apparently has just remarried or has just taken a second wife who is mentioned 
here in the scripture as the prophet wife and he makes love to her apparently for the first time and she conceives and gives birth to you guessed it a son and they name him hurry up destruction and the lord reiterates his promise that before this boy even says dada or mama all the wealth of Israel and Aram will be carried off by the king of Assyria and Judah's destruction will follow after that. And that is exactly what happened. The Jews of Palestine know this prophecy that Matthew is quoting was fulfilled 700 years ago when Assyria conquered Israel and Aram, and that 150 years after that, the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered, just like the prophecy said. So why in the world is Matthew bringing up an old, fulfilled prophecy now in the context of Jesus? It's anybody's guess, but I think it's because God is making his people the same offer again. God is offering once again to literally dwell with us, to live with us. And this time he's offering it through Jesus. Jesus is the new God with us. And God's people have the same choice that King Ahaz did. Will they take God's offer or will they refuse to humble themselves and admit that God is God and they are not? Will they reject God's offer or accept it? This whole fulfillment Matthew is talking about is not actually about whether or not Mary is a virgin. That is incidental to the story, believe it or not. It's about God making an amazing offer to us. And now the ball is in our court. How will we respond? And that explains why in verse 21 of Matthew, the angel says to Joseph, name him Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. But literally two verses later, Matthew turns around and says, this fulfills the prophecy. They will come and call him Emmanuel, God with us. Haven't you ever wondered why Mary and Joseph named him Jesus and not Emmanuel? And how this whole Emmanuel, Emmanuel name thing got fulfilled or why Matthew seems to contradict himself in, within these two verses? Well, now you know. It is so cool what we discover when we faithfully use our backpack tools. And so Joseph takes Mary home as his wife, but he does not consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. So let's take a quick look at Jesus' genealogy. Both Matthew and Luke include it, so it must be significant. And here we pick up another backpack tool, a really important one. When you are reading a story in the Gospels, Always look to see if the story you are reading is in any of the other Gospels and read all the versions of the story. Many of the stories are set within larger sections. And if that's the case, go back and look at the overall section. Find the topic sentence. 
Figure out what the author is trying to demonstrate in that big section. How this writer presents Jesus' actions and teachings may be different than how the writer of another gospel would present it because he's trying to make a different overall point. Wait, what? You mean the same story can mean different things in different gospels? Yep, sure can. You mean Jesus' words in a particular parable or teaching can be different between the Gospels? Yep, (laughs) sure can. So if the version of the story you're reading is perplexing, go back and compare it to the other versions in the other Gospels and see if you can, number one, figure out what point the the author is trying to make. And that will, number two, help you discern what Jesus himself might have originally said and how his words may have been given a particular spin by this gospel writer. So let's use that backpack tool. Let's compare Jesus' genealogy in Matthew to the one in Luke and see if we can figure out what their particular points are. Matthew starts with a statement that this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he starts the genealogy with Abraham and traces downwards to Jesus. Abraham is the one to whom the promise and the covenant was given. So this totally fits with Matthew's focus on Jesus being the Messiah, the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies and the promises of God. Luke, on the other hand, begins with Jesus and traces backwards to Adam. In both accounts, the the section that is the generations between Abraham and David match exactly. That's about all that matches. Beyond that, the genealogies are completely different. Matthew traces down from David to down to Jesus through David's son, King Solomon. While Luke traces from David through Solomon's older brother, Nathan. Isn't that interesting? No one has any idea why, really. So Matthew traces from David through Solomon. Luke traces from David through Nathan. Some say Luke's version is Mary's genealogy, but Luke never says one word about Mary. In fact, Luke just told us earlier that Mary is a relative of Elizabeth, who is a descendant of Aaron and is therefore of the tribe of Levi. So Mary would be of the tribe of Levi, not of Judah. So I'm like not buying this whole it's Mary's lineage thing. So we really have no idea why Luke considered Nathan instead of Solomon to be Joseph's ancestor. Either way, Both Nathan and Solomon are sons of David, which is the important part as far as Jesus being the Messiah is concerned. In all, Matthew divides his genealogy into three sets of 14 generations each. Now, 14, as far as I know, is not a special number in the Bible. Scholars speculate about this, but truly, we have no idea why he does this. And that brings us to the last point how the timing of these generations works out. On average, a generation occurs every 20 to 30 years. 
I use 25 years as an easy rule of thumb. Three sets of 14 would place Abraham at about the year 1050 BCE. There is no way. We know that that's about the time King Solomon lived. And Abraham lived something like 500 years earlier than that. So we know Matthew's genealogies are definitely skipping generations in there somewhere. Now, Luke slips in an extra 14 generations between Jesus and David, which would push Abraham back a little bit. Luke's genealogy would put Abraham at about 1400 BCE, but that's still too recent. That's about the time the Hebrews were conquering the promised land. That's like around the time of the judges. So Luke also definitely telescopes the genealogy between Jesus and Abraham. And Luke um, telescopes the genealogy from Abraham back to Adam even more. I mean, if we take Luke at face value, there would only be 20 generations between Abraham and Adam, only about 500 years. Like, no. In fact, from Jesus to Adam in Luke's genealogy, we'd put Adam at around 1900 BCE, near the end of the Bronze Age. And um, even if you go back and, and you look at all the, you know, how the lifespans according to gener- Genesis were much, much, much longer, I'm not buying that people waited till they were 80 years old to start having kids. I mean, a generation is still going to be every 25 years. They just lived longer. They had longer lifespans. They're going to have start having kids as, as soon as they can. So the timing we know that this has to be dramatically telescoped. So this is a great example where our backpack tools help. When we see passages like this that make no sense, we can compare them and consider what the author's overall viewpoint is and let that wrapping paper fall away. In this case, the wrapping paper is the exact genealogy and number of years. That's obviously not the important point to either of these writers. What's important to Matthew is that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, a descendant of the promise of Abraham and of King David. That's why he structured his genealogy like this. But what's important for Luke? Luke tells us it's important to Luke that Jesus is fully human. He traces him firmly back to Adam. But then Luke goes one step further. Adam, the father of humanity, is the son of God. Luke's message is that we are all in our very humanity, actual, literal children of God. Well, we can't do any better than that. So it's time to pull out a couple of ideas from this lesson and consider them um, for ourselves. We're going to go into our breakout groups, and there are two choices. You you may not have time to do both of them, so it might be one of those that you want to pick one and then go back to the other if you have time. Um, I, I give you a choice of talking about what we just talked about, about being, Luke tracing back to Adam and um, Adam as the son of God. 
And uh, I give you another choice, which is uh, talking about the idea of Elijah and how important, you know, what's the significance of forgiveness and parents forgiving their children. And you might jot a third option, which I didn't put down there, but you might prefer to talk about, which is the whole virgin prophecy being fulfilled already, but now being reoffered as a sign that God will fulfill his promises. Take your pick. All right. This is my favorite part where I get to hear what piqued your interest in all of this. We didn't talk about any of the questions, just saying. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. That works. What y'all talk about? I'll start to see off. The um we talked about um fulfillment of prophecies and how sometimes there maybe people miss the fact that it was or wasn't fulfilled or um the fact that um things we've learned in the past may not match with what we're learning right now. Like I always learned that the two genealogies one was Mary's and one was Joseph's. And I also learned that the reason for the two different prophecies was that the Matthew prophecy traced the kingly lineage and the Luke prophecy traced the priestly lineage and therefore supporting the fact that Jesus was both both priest and king. Never mind but, the fact that it didn't, the priestly one never went through the priestly line, right? so you know i'm like right now we also talked about um jesus as a baby wait a minute he was god all-knowing all-powerful but he wasn't because he kind of put aside that part of him later later they say he emptied himself Mm -hmm. um but you know wouldn't jesus have already known he was god but mary had to teach him stuff we were just all over the place, but yeah, it was why it was, it's good. good. Yeah. Woody, Woody brought up a point about Mary as teacher. Mm-hmm. Did you want to talk about that, Woody? Well, all I said was that for whatever reason, it had never occurred to me to think about what would Mary have taught Jesus about who he was, but clearly she would have taught him something. And she would have taught him how special he was. And that just, just had never occurred to me. The ultimate I, was, homeschooling. I was told at one time that, that neither Joseph nor Mary were important. They were just the way God got them to, got Jesus to earth is between them. Um, and I was told that because with my grandmother being Catholic, everybody was worried that I was going to join that cult. And with they Mary, it a and cult. That, yeah, think I understand. Yeah, no, it, Catholic, and, Catholic Catholicism is not a cult. Just want to lay no, that out there. No, it's not. I know this, and <laughs> but it's like that's what they were. You know, you got to do this and this, and stop believing this because this will lead you to this. And it's funny because now I look back at it and it was like. Wow, what were you guys afraid of? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, the whole idea that they would that they would negate the value of Jesus's parents 
brought him up in the faith and said they weren't important. That that's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> it is. It is said, uh, oh, I'm sorry. What Renee said is what touched on what we were talking about, which was fear, and how we were talking about that about turning the hearts of parents to their children, and how that can be a literal relationship, but it can also mean community and other relationships. And we could go back into our small groups because we were having a good old time. <laughs> but I think that was, I think El, Ellen had some comments about that, about fear and how it distracts. Or was it Erica? Yeah, I was saying that when it seems like sometimes um, fear can get in the way from parents, the relationship between parents and their children uh, and, and the lack of understanding of certain things. So this Bible study has helped us understand many things that before we viewed it as dualistic or right and wrong. And so I think that sometimes that fear uh, the parents fear for their children kind of gets in the way of a relationship based on how they view or understand God. Mm -hmm. Gail, question. Yeah. Is the point being made here, or is one of the points being made here that in the end, all of those relationships are going to be mended? Yes, absolutely. Because we see so many broken relationships right now, God and especially parent-child relationships. God is about healing. God is making us whole. God brought Jesus to show us visibly <laughs> how that works. Um, and, and, and I do truly believe um, everything about God. And one of the things that is part of who God is, is, is healing. You know, we talked, we have talked um, often um, in various of these class series about the fire of the Holy Spirit being a refining fire and how what's not holy is burned away. But what what is hurt is burned away. What is unwhole is burned away. So that life can take root. And so where there are relationships that are good and whole and life-giving, those don't get burned away. But I think where there has been, there is damage and and quote, unforgivable hurt, that's what's getting burned away. So that new relationships can take root. And while we were talking about that fear and the things that are going on in our small group, I think we were talking about some of the controversy in the church that I go to right now 
and there's a lot of fear. I made some comments and about four people came up and thanked me. And then some other people came up to educate me. And it was all fear. And, you know, this atrocity and that atrocity. And here, I'll email you this. And it was, it was hard to get away from. Yes. Yes. Well, I feel like, you know, Ellen and I, um, having come out and dealing with some of this with our parents, I, there's almost like a sense where I wonder if some parents believe like they're the ones going to be standing before the Lord on accounts of what we're doing. And so that's where that fear comes. Like, I need to make sure that I'm doing things right and that I don't accept this relationship because if not, if I'm standing before the Lord, then I'm the one that's going to be held accountable, not us. So there is some, somehow this distorted view that we are held, that we're being held accountable for our children's life as well. I'm not a parent, but I'm, I'm yeah. thinking this is what my parents might be thinking. Erica, I think a lot of that no, comes I think you're- from the responsibility that our churches put on us to preach the gospel, to save people, and not realizing that that's not our job. That's God's job. We don't, our job is just to love. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what that means. My daughter, my oldest daughter, um, was in tears about her siblings who are LBGTQ because she was of the, the mindset that they were going to die and go to hell. And I had to explain to her that's not the case and why that's not the case. And I mean, she was literally in tears because she loves them and didn't want them in hell. So it's not so much, um, I don't think it's so much a fear for their own mortal soul or what it's a fear because they love you and they think you're going to go to hell because that's what they've been indoctrinated with. Getting them to be able to come to the realization that that's not the truth and that they've been taught a lie, that's the hard part. But um, I've heard you in our past studies talk about how you're trying to maintain that relationship and show love for them. And I want to commend you for that. I think that you are um, showing respect to your parents in a way that honors God. Marlene. Yeah, I wanted to say something um, also to what Erica said. Um, My parents never raised us with this. I think this was something my dad got exposed to as he got older, got elderly, I shall say. Um, Because when he was like in his late 80s, he got very, very, very concerned about were all of his kids and grandkids connected to a church? And at the time, um, my older daughter had kind of pulled away. She didn't feel a need for a church. You know, she still had a faith, but she was not tied to a church. And I, I made the mistake in a conversation with him one day where he was asking, you know, well, you know is it, she was away at college and I was in a, you know, a church. 
And I said, well, not right now. Occasionally she'll go to a young adults thing at this church in Hollywood, but um, she's not really going, well, what about Sunday morning? Why isn't she in church on Sunday morning? And I said, um, she doesn't want to get up that early. <laughs> and my dad just was always a very meek and mild-mannered man. I, I'm a, he just lost it and said, um, how disrespectful of God. She needs to be in church on Sunday morning. It's not for her convenience. It's to honor God that she needs to be in church. And, and um, you are going to answer before God about whether she is actually respecting God showing up in church. And this just came totally out of the blue. He had never said anything like this before. And two thoughts came into my head. One I said, and one I thought. The, the one I thought was, he's getting closer to death and he is worried that he's going to have to answer to God for not only his children, but his grandchildren. And I don't know where he got that idea because that was never taught in our home. The second thing that I did say was, Dad, I don't think God cares what time Anna goes to church. You know, God wants a relationship with Anna. He doesn't want her on a timetable. And that kind of took the wind out of his sails a little bit. But somewhere he picked up that very fear that you were saying you think your parents are experiencing that we are somehow being held accountable to God, whether our kids grow up to be good, God-fearing, church-attending every time the door is open Christians. I don't know where that came from. How much guilt that lays on people who have truly tried to have a, a home devoted to, to, to God, a Christian home, a um, loving home, a, you know, parents who are believers themselves and then their kids, you know, seemingly and truly go off the rails and, and yet they'll have another child who doesn't. It's like same home, <laughs> different kids. Uh, we are, we are, we, I, I definitely think as parents are called to give our kids as much love and structure and um, participation as possible um, and as appropriate in diff different growth stages of their life. But we should never dare to get in between our children and God. God knows best how to relate to our kids and we can rest in the fact that god will run after them god will pursue them <laughs> in ways that we can't even imagine um, and god will love them right yeah. and i think that's one of the consistent things that you have emphasized throughout this um which is also you know nothing can separate us from the love of god that, you know, if we remind ourselves that whoever we're having a difficulty with or who we're worried about, you know, they, they are never separated from the love of God. There is no place you can go that God is not with you. Loving. I almost, oh, sorry, Mama, I almost feel like as we get older and mature, we make it more complicated. So 
it talks about the having childlike faith. We we could that question of turn their hearts of parents to their children maybe mean just have that childlike faith that you once had before the world brought the fear and the confusion and the complication because it seems like it's very difficult for some adults when you mature in your faith to just accept love right it's like it can't just be love it it, it, it has to be love plus something else. Like I, I we've mm-hmm. even heard in our own situation, it, it's it's not just about love. God's calling me to obey, and therefore, we can't uh, support this or accept this. So it's almost like we make it more complicated. And could that passage be to reminding the parents to turn to their children as a way of having that childlike faith again that we have somehow lost and made it more complicated. And that word obey, I think, has been taken way out of context because that word means listen. And that word will means means with God, it, it it's it should be as organic and natural to listen to God as it was for you to hear your mother's voice in the womb. Mm -hmm. That, that idea that you were talking about, you know, love and obey, um, the, the, the words of an old gospel song I heard when I was a kid, came in, you know, I may be showing my age here, but there was this this song that we used to sing, it's called Trust and Obey. And the chorus was trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. (laughs) And that's actually true, to trust and listen. Yeah, and and listen, but not- That's what that word means. Yeah. It's like, like I hear my mother calling and doing what my mother says, you know? Yeah, rather than follow the rules. Right. Renee, I heard you say it something, but you I couldn't hear you. Okay. I had a question. It seemed to me that in the Old Testament, when we were studying it, that people weren't afraid of God as they were in... Because the angels, when they came to Noah or came to somebody, when God spoke to them, they're he didn't have to say, do not be afraid. So he just spoke to them. Like with the three visitors to Abraham. Sometimes he said, don't be afraid. The angel said, don't be afraid because they're pretty fierce, but very often it wasn't. And where'd that thought come from? To be afraid of God and the angels. Was that from like a Babylonian or Greek or Rome? Or I something think it's like a that, natural you know? human reaction, depending on the appearance of, Okay, you know, so it just would depend. Sometimes in the Hebrew Bible, angels came and they looked like just like regular old important men, you know, and sometimes they came looking like warriors <laughs> and sometimes they were shining and glowing and, you know, and scary. Um, so the reaction seemed to be uh, people's natural reaction, but we should 
never fear God in the sense of needing to run away and hide from God. We should fear God in the sense of revering God and knowing that God is God and we are not and that God loves us and therefore it's okay. So we're running out of time soon. Um, any other last thoughts? And yeah, Shirley and, and Donna are, are discussing in the chat the um, Jonathan Edwards sermon, Sinners in the hang Hand of an Angry God. God's dangling you like a spider over an open pit, you know. <laughs> Horse patootie. <laughs> um, Gail, um, I've been thinking through all of this, um, your explanation of mercy as an intense emotion. It's an emotional response. And that um, that it was God acted out of God's reaction to a plight. And I think that that I, I think that's just going to be rolling around in my head for a good long time about what situations require a response? Which ones do I respond to? What is my emotion? What is my um, impulse? What is propelling me here? And I just really love that you referred to God's emotion of mercy. Yeah. And God, and we see that happen over and over and God is always reacting to oppression whether we brought it on ourselves or whether somebody's doing it to us and that over and over when when God is roused to that kind of intense immediate action it has to do with people who are being oppressed people who are being wounded doesn't have to be physical oppression. Jesus is going to show us that. It doesn't have to be physical oppression. You know. Why do you think so many Christians emphasize the justice of God over the mercy of God? I, I don't know. I can't speak for them. What, what do you all think? Control. Yeah. 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 And and justice, the word justice is used synonymous with punishment, as opposed to uh, you know righting wrongs, you know um, um, restoration, restorative justice. It's always punitive justice. I heard a fabulous explanation of justice. Some gosh, I was in my early twenties. I was still in college. And it talked about that justice is not that when your new car breaks down, you take it into the shop and they fix it right the first time and you um, pay the bill and you go on about your way without any other hiccups. Justice is when the car doesn't break down in the first place. And that's a real different look at justice, punitive versus even versus restorative. It's when things are right. And will be right and will continue to be right. 
And that's the promise that is going to happen. Yeah. And I, I think about that. I was, I was 20, 21 years old, maybe when I heard that. And I bet that crosses my mind multiple times a year. Beautiful. I offer, Gail, may I offer something? Um, of course, Mary. It's so good to have you here. <laughs> I raised my hand, but nobody can see it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would tell you today that I have a heart full of gratitude. Thank you for you being our teacher, our rabbi, our rabbi, our friend, our woman priest. Um, and these the focus of today was so rich. I wish we'd had hours to talk. <laughs> that has spoken to my heart forever is a visitation. And I would thank each of you today for being part of my visitation. That when I encountered you in the conversation, in the breakout rooms, in the teaching, in the chats, you awakened the God the Jesus in me, and I see that same God in each of you. To me, this was and continues to be with these teachings, Gail, visitation every time that we come together, and I am grateful for it, and I am better for it, and I thank you. Thanks to each one of you, and and through whom the Holy Spirit is weaving and doing and creating. God bless every single one of you and i'll see you next week bye bye everybody bye bye love